You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. you back to your seat. Thanks for greeting one another and praying for one another. It's a joy to be together here this morning. My name is Michael, and I'm the director of outreach here at River City, and I want to welcome you here this morning. I'm glad you are here with us. As a church, we remind each other of our mission every week, and our mission is we exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond. And we remind ourselves of our mission because we carry weariness with us into this place every week. Our weariness can come from the busyness or brokenness or from any number of things in life. And even in the midst of that weariness, we want to remind you this morning to be renewed in with Jesus. Jesus calls us to come to him and find rest for our souls. That's why we exist. That's why we gather together this morning to be renewed. You would open your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. That's where we will be today. Acts chapter 18, verses 23 through 28. We continue into chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. If you are using a pew Bible, that's on page 927. Acts 18, 23 is where we will start. And while you're turning there, let me just say that if you are new to River City, we are in a series titled Acts, The Gospel Multiplies. We have spent the winters and springs of the last couple years exploring Acts Part 1, The Gospel Takes Root. You might remember that. That covered Acts chapters 1 to 8. And then later we did Acts Part Gospel Bears Fruit. That covered chapters 8 through 15. And now, as has been a seasonal rhythm of ours, we are in the final part of Acts. So the sermons between now and Easter will take us to the book's end in chapter 28. Last week, we learned that in the course of verses 18 through 22, Luke compressed a considerable amount of traveling done by Paul, which took him from Corinth through Ephesus to Jerusalem and then Antioch, and then, as we see in verse 1 of chapter 19, back to Ephesus, whereupon he entered the next phase of his missionary work. And so, as we close the second missionary journey, and we see the start to Paul's third and final journey, the author Luke gives us an interlude. Before Luke takes up the story of Paul's return to Ephesus and his work there, Luke inserts an account of the arrival of Apollos. Apollos is new. He's, he's new on the scene here. So we will read our passage starting in Acts 18.23 on page 9.27. Let me read. After spending some time there, referring to Antioch, he, Paul, departed and went from one place to the next, through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. 
But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you embody the gospel, that your message is the gospel, and that you've been teaching us and showing us and revealing who you are to us. Help us to be learners. Help us to abide in you, Holy Spirit. Jesus, help us to share this message with others, those who have placed in front of us. And Lord, as I preach now, let this message be exalting to you. Let it glorify you and let it be good for us. We pray this in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. Well, you may recognize this movie quote. I've been waiting for you, Obi-Wan. We meet again at last. The circle is now complete. When I left you, I was but the learner. Now I am the master. It was spoken by the villainous Darth Vader in the iconic movie Star Wars, A New Hope, directed by George Lucas. And what intrigued me about Vader's arrogant claim here is his denial of being a learner. He is admitting he once learned from his old master, Obi-Wan. But now, Vader believes he is finished learning from him. But little does he know that is not true. Because first, if you aren't a Star Wars fan, I just want to say, I'm sorry for you. Go, go watch the film. And second, Vader's words are spoken in the middle of a story. And we know our villain has much more to learn, even from his old teacher. He is still a learner. And this simple truth isn't taught only in a galaxy far, far away. In real life, we are learners too. We are constantly, knowingly and unknowingly, learning new things to make sense of our world. 
And we often use stories, even science fiction movies, to learn new things that shape our experiences and even our deepest beliefs. We even gather on Sunday mornings to learn the most important story that brings real renewal to our lives, a story we cannot change or add to. That story is of a man, Jesus Christ, who embodies the gospel, which is good news for all humanity. And we teach this gospel story through the songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray, and now the word of God preached over us. Indeed, Jesus is God, and he is the good and loving king in the kingdom of God. And in our arrogance, we build our own kingdoms of consumerism or workaholism or a myriad of other idols that lead to our sin, suffering, and death. So God teaches us in the Bible that he loves us so much that he sent his son, Jesus, to save us. To save us by defeating our sin for us, something we could never do for ourselves, nor can we ever repay God for his greatest act of love. And since Jesus is king over death, he rose again from the dead and commissions us to share this good news with those who have not learned it. And this gospel message expands around the world, and as it does so, so do people's knowledge of it. Unlike everything else we learn, learning the gospel message does not stay as head knowledge. It can't. Rather, it either makes its way into the hearts of true believers of Jesus, or the gospel comes up against the spiritual stubbornness of unbelievers. Like the people in our story today, there is no neutrality after you learn the gospel. We are all faced with the choice of accepting or rejecting this message. So here's my main message for us this morning. Learning the gospel completely changes our lives. Learning the gospel completely changes our lives. And this happens when we are met with the message of Jesus. And according to our text, there are at least three ways that learning the gospel does this. The first, learning the gospel leads to greater clarity about Jesus. The second, learning the gospel leads to greater confidence in Jesus. And the third, learning the gospel leads to the greatest change accomplished by Jesus. Here in this final point, we will focus on the change of salvation. So let's first explore the clarity that comes from learning the gospel. Here we will learn that gospel community corrects our misunderstandings about Jesus, and then we will learn the commands of the gospel correct our unbelief about Jesus. So let's look here in verse 24, how our community corrects our misunderstandings about Jesus. It's here that we meet Apollos in verse 24, who was a sincere follower of Jesus, but had a deficient knowledge of the gospel. We see in verse 25 and later in verse 3 of chapter 19, Apollos and the disciples in Ephesus had an incorrect belief about baptism. Apollos was also a traveling teacher, and so he came to Ephesus, and then in verse 26, he went to teach at the synagogue. Now, Ephesus, we'll see, is the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor. It is also a meeting place of various cultural influences, and as we will learn later in verse 10 of chapter 19, it proved to be a strategic place for Paul and his contemporaries to share the gospel to the entire region. We know from back in verse 19 that Priscilla and Aquila were already in Ephesus, and now in verse 26, at the synagogue with Apollos. This sets the stage for a teachable moment for Apollos. In verse 26, after Priscilla and Aquila heard Apollos speak, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. 
Notice what Priscilla and Aquila did not do to Apollos. They did not tease him. They did not taunt him. They did not tweet his words with a belittling meme for all the Ephesians to see. Rather, they took him aside, or in the NIV translation it reads, invited him to their home. We are to see that in the warmth of a safe environment, Priscilla and Aquila taught Apollos more about the way of Jesus. We see a community who are centered on the gospel, and that means they correct misunderstandings about Jesus with grace and truth. In her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Rosaria Butterfield explains what radically ordinary hospitality can look like. She writes, It is reflected in Christian homes that resemble those of the first century. Such homes are communal. As Christians, we are a set-apart people, and we do things differently. So our neighbors are right here, sharing our table. Rosaria's reflection points back to the hospitality and discipleship we've seen from Priscilla and Aquila in verse 26. Apollos then was willing to come to their table, learn their teaching, and let the word of the Lord correct his misunderstandings. And so, River City Church, let this passage be a clear reminder for us. We are called to be in community with one another. This means we encourage one another in our faith, and we correct one another when we're wrong. We correct in a way that isn't publicly shaming, but is privately edifying. We invest in the growth of our community groups. We go on walks or go out on coffee dates for the simple purpose of getting to know each other and asking how we can pray. These simple acts of discipleship are all the more apparent as we walk through a significant building transition where our locale for community may change. So let the scriptures encourage us that we need to be in a community who are all about Jesus, regardless of where that community gathers. We are the people of God gathered on the word of God, learning how the gospel clarifies every part of our lives. Moving on, we learn the teaching Apollos accepted in verse 27 was also clarifying for the gospel community in Ephesus. They gained greater confidence in Apollos' understanding of the gospel, so much so that when Apollos wished across to Achaia, they were happy and wrote a letter of commendation for him to the community there. But before celebrating more of Apollos' confidence in the gospel, while in Achaia, it's important that we revisit verse 25. He knew only the baptism of John. Somehow, Apollos received instruction about the way of Jesus before meeting Priscilla and Aquila, and he knew the gospel message accurately. We are not told from whom Apollos first learned about Jesus, but it may have been the disciples of John the Baptist in chapter 19. What we do know is this baptism of John needs to be clarified because it is crucial for our belief in Jesus. So Paul teaches the correct commands of the gospel to repent, believe in Jesus, and be baptized in his name. For the commands of the gospel correct our unbelief about Jesus. We read now in verse 1 of chapter 19 that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Like back in verse 23, Paul took the route that allowed him to visit churches that were planted on earlier missionary journeys and to give those Christians some spiritual encouragement. And we see now in verses 1 and 2, Paul found 12 men in Ephesus who professed to be disciples, but in whom Paul discerned something amiss. So he asks two probing questions. He asks them in verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? 
So Paul's first question suggests at least two things here, that he need to clarify if these disciples were truly Christians since they professed to believe, and second, that he, Paul, taught that true belief in Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit went together. These disciples answer, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul's second question, verse 3, and the disciples' corresponding answer clarified to Paul that these disciples made John the Baptist and the baptism with water the focus of their belief so they had not received the Holy Spirit. This, like in, back in verses 24 through 26, sets up a teachable moment for these disciples to learn the correct baptism that John prophesied and to learn the gospel John proclaimed. When Paul taught in verse 4 that John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is just this teaching also points us back to Mark 1. Starting in verse 7, Mark 1 says, And he, John, preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. So John himself taught his followers of the coming of the one, that is Jesus, with the command that they should believe in the one. You see that in verse 4. John also taught that the coming one would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And as we see in verse 5, John's words were not an empty command that Paul taught in vain. The disciples learned the truth of the gospel here. These disciples misunderstood John the Baptist's job, even though John told people not to follow him but they did know about repentance and baptism in water. So it's like they just needed to get over the hump of unbelief. And their big moment of new belief came when they learned the message of Jesus. Learning the message of Jesus changed everything for these disciples because they now believed in Jesus as their Savior and they repented to him for their unbelief. They also obeyed the command of the gospel and were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. The commands of the gospel corrected these disciples' unbelief about Jesus. This episode is a reoccurring theme in the book of Acts. Like these disciples, more and more people learn that they can receive the Spirit of Jesus, that they can receive the Spirit after they choose to believe in Jesus and repent of their sins. The Bible's command for Christians to be baptized in the water symbolizes this entire act of belief, repentance, and receiving the Holy Spirit. And it's important we rehearse this gospel truth because in our doubt, we may wonder, have I received the Holy Spirit? And I want to assure you that if you treasure the truth that Jesus died and then rose from the dead for you so that you could enjoy life with him forever, and if you respond to what Jesus did for you by following him with everything you have over everything this world offers, then you have received the Holy Spirit. Whereas people who have chosen not to believe in the gospel and therefore have not received the Holy Spirit, we will learn more about this later in verse 9. For those of you in this room who have not trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you can. I want to make clear that baptism does not save you. The power of salvation does not come from immersion in the waters. The saving power comes from Jesus alone. You simply have to trust in him. You may remember Pastor Jeremy is teaching a baptism class soon. If you have not been baptized or would like to learn more about baptism, 
please contact us and be assured that learning the gospel leads to greater clarity about Jesus and clarity for all of life. So next up, we will learn that the gospel gives us confidence in the spirit of Jesus. We'll see that in chapter 19. And then we will learn that the gospel gives us confidence in the word of Jesus. We'll see that in chapter 18. So looking at chapter 19, verse 6, And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So let's ask ourselves two leading questions about this verse, because it's a wild one. Did Paul find his confidence in laying his hands on these disciples? No. The act of laying of hands has been, done, has been used before, like in Acts 13. We witnessed a similar episode when the church in Antioch laid hands on Paul and Barnabas. So in chapter 13, and now in verse 6, we see the Holy Spirit comes and incorporates believers into the church community. Paul's confidence here is in the power of the Spirit of Jesus. It's in the power of the Holy Spirit. Next question, did these disciples find their confidence in their mouths when they spoke in tongues and prophesied? Again, no, these signs are solely from the Holy Spirit. They are the same signs of the Holy Spirit seen during Pentecost back in Acts 2. So we just learned about receiving the Holy Spirit when we believe in Jesus. Receiving the Spirit can lead to other signs of the Spirit's work, like being filled with the Holy Spirit, which is what's happening in verse 6. So after accepting the teaching from Paul, these disciples experienced signs from God when they were filled with the Spirit. So what unites receiving the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit is both require the same trust in the gospel of Jesus. Let's explore this idea some more. In her article, The Relationship Between Teaching and Signs in the Bible, Shri Hayes writes, teaching the scriptures is one key way the community of God learns and grows. As we look at the theme of teaching in the Bible, we find it shares a relationship with miraculous signs from God. And I'll remind us here that Paul taught in verse 4, and the Holy Spirit came with signs in verse 6. So these two actions share the purpose of pointing us to trust in God alone. Our trust is in Jesus, who is our ultimate sign. His life, death, and resurrection and ascension made a way for us to be in a united relationship with God. Shri concludes, God can still use signs today, just as he can still use teaching. Both are used to correct and encourage those who trust in him. But ultimately, we are called to trust in Jesus not signs. And when we trust Jesus, we ourselves become signs of God's reality and promises to the world. That's because when we trust in Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit. So when we trust in the teaching of the gospel, the signs of God's Spirit are activated in us. These signs may look different in our discipleship context than in verse 6, but it, it is still the same Spirit at work within us. So now, instead of trusting in yourself and giving in to your patterns of sins, you can trust the Spirit's work of renewing your mind so you experience freedom from the power of sin and increased obedience in the Word of God. You can also trust the Spirit to prompt you to confess your sin to others in your community and celebrate victory of sin and attribute that victory to being led by the Spirit because our confidence is in the Holy Spirit, and this comes from learning the gospel. And as we've also been learning, the gospel gives us confidence in the scriptures. So picking things back up, in chapter 18, verse 27, 
When Apollos arrived at Achaia, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So the similarities between this episode and Paul's visit at the synagogue in uh, chapter 19, verse 8, are clear. Apollos powerfully refuted the Jews in public. We see that in verse 28. And Paul spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them. That's to the Jews in verse 8 in chapter 19. But neither Apollos nor Paul found their confidence in their power, boldness, or rhetoric. So don't mistake their confidence as teachers for where their true confidence lies. Verse 28 says, Apollos taught by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Their confidence as teachers could not add to or improve upon who Jesus is. So why does learning the gospel give us confidence in the scriptures? Because the scriptures give us this gospel message. Preacher and theologian Charles Spurgeon once said about an eloquent preacher, he may preach the gospel better than I can, but he cannot preach a better gospel. The gospel message is perfect just the way it is. And in our efforts of sharing the gospel with our neighbors, we may fumble with our words. So keep the message fresh on your mind. Keep the message in front of you. And even practically speaking, we have these Knowing God booklets available at the Welcome Center and in the Fellowship Hall for our gospel witness training happening after the worship service today. I encourage you to pick one or two of these up, read it for yourself, and when you're ready, give it to your neighbor. It walks you through a clear presentation of the gospel message, and it uses the scriptures as your guide. This booklet is a fast read and fits in your back pocket, but most importantly, it gives you the words to say, which can quickly turn into reading the Bible with your neighbor. I simply encourage you to ask an unbeliever who you are getting to know, hey, I was wondering if I could share something with you that I've been learning at my church. Would you like to read this with me? Yes, even asking that simple question requires a level of confidence, but our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is in the word of the Lord. It is in the gospel. Learning the gospel also leads to our greatest change accomplished by Jesus. We've been talking about some ways that learning the gospel changes our lives. We can gain clarity about the gospel and we can gain confidence in the gospel. Both of these changes happen after we've been saved. And so my third point, we will focus even more in on salvation, which is the greatest change for the Christian. Jesus' salvation will be received in one episode and it will be rejected in another. The gospel message is received where there is belief in Jesus in chapter 28, and the gospel message is rejected where there is no belief in Jesus in chapter 19. So looking at chapter 18, we learn that Apollos was changed by the gospel when Priscilla and Aquila corrected his inaccurate teachings back in verse 26. And now in verse 27, we read that Apollos greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. So what matters is it was through God's grace that some believed in Jesus, and it was through God's grace that Apollos could even be a great help for some to receive Jesus' salvation into their hearts. We know that Apollos was persuasive, fervent, and bold when he taught, but make no mistake, not his reputation nor even all his knowledge of the scriptures could save these Achaeans. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is our own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
And I say that to say this, it was by the grace of God we received Jesus' message and were changed by the gospel. And as gospel witnesses, we cannot replicate that kind of change apart from his grace. But this truth, it gets muted in the ears of audiences who follow the speakers of our world and want to be changed by their messages instead. Think with me for a moment about a well-known radio or, or TV broadcaster or a, or a podcaster people listen to. We listen to them because we are drawn, in part, to the speaker's delivery, to charisma. That alone can cause us to trust their messages more than we realize. For example, when sports announcer Al Michaels shouted, do you believe in miracles at the 1980 Winter Olympics, his captivating words became more remembered than the hockey match itself. So Al went on to announce on big stages for the next 30 years. The masses loved learning from Al, and as a result, his messages changed a corner of our culture. However, even the messages from the most charismatic speaker that everyone listens to cannot accomplish the greatest change in their lives, the sole change everyone deep down is looking for. But Jesus' message can make that change. You see, Jesus is unlike any teacher or orator who ever lived because his message outlives all others. That's why we say the scriptures are his living words. Jesus' message has the only power to breathe life into your soul and the only power to change you to follow his way in your everyday lives. This is the power of salvation change. So our role as gospel witnesses is to share the gospel message fully and faithfully, however monotone we may sound, and to trust Jesus' behind every word of that message, working to save more souls. 1 Corinthians 3 says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Finally, we see the gospel is rejected by those who do not believe. So jumping over to verse 9, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he, Paul, withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. So Paul continued teaching about the kingdom of God in the synagogue, and Luke records Paul got cut off by some who rejected his teaching. So after learning about the gospel from Paul, why did some listeners reject Paul's message? To answer, I'll, I'll give you three causes here, okay? Because they were not changed by the gospel. Yes, there was a change that came about them in verse 9, but it was a change to utter obstinacy. Second, because they did not find their confidence in the gospel. Their confidence was in their own belief, so they continued in unbelief. And because even after they were corrected by Paul's teaching, they still spoke evil of the way. They spoke evil of Jesus before the congregation. So Paul leaves them. But don't mistake Paul's response to the people's rejection of the gospel as cowardice. Remember, Paul is going to spend another two years ministering in Ephesus, and he did the faithful work of reasoning with them and persuading them back in verse 8. This is not the same as Paul quitting 30 seconds into his first day of teaching because someone in the congregation heckled him. We know that didn't happen, but if we're being honest, we often fear those kinds of awkward situations. They are difficult, to say the least. 
We fear what they will think of us. We fear leaving relationships behind or ourselves being left behind by those we have beginning to know because they reject us. And I'm sure Paul and his disciples navigated this kind of rejection too. We know there is going to be a variety of responses to our gospel witness. Paul spent three months giving a clear gospel presentation to these Jews, but sometimes we try to share the gospel with our unbelieving friend, but we bail too soon. And if I'm being honest, that's me. I'll share with my neighbor that I have a faith, but then I'll stop sharing out of fear of sharing what exactly my Christian faith is. And in our minds, we rifle through some of the what-ifs, like what if they will stop being my friend? What if they think I'm just pushing an agenda on them? Or what if I don't get invited back to next year's Super Bowl party? I'm encouraging myself here, and I encourage you, turn your what-ifs into so-whats. So what if they unfriend me? So what if they cancel me? And so what if I don't get invited back? So what if they reject me and my message? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's our theme verse this year, Romans 1:16. And if you're the person openly hating on Jesus, by God's grace, you can leave your evil ways behind. Start by asking yourself, why am I saying those hurtful things? Why, and, and who do I need to apologize for for the things that I've said? Why am I too stubborn to accept Jesus' gift of salvation? And what other false salvations do I believe instead? Write these questions out and then be honest and answer them. And may this reality check humble you to see your sin and see your sin is too great for you to correct yourself. You cannot permanently change what you've said about Jesus and what you've done to him and what you've even thought about him. But that's why learning the gospel is the greatest thing you will ever learn. For in the gospel, Jesus promises he will never cancel you, but he will always forgive your sin. And that includes all your past, present, and future sins against himself and other people because he loves you so much that he will not have you stay in your current mode of a hard heart. And if you've learned this invitation and know that it's extended to you today, will you be changed by the gospel? Learn the gospel. Verse 9 where Paul's ministry in Ephesus relocated to his new base of operations, a lecture hall. And what a fitting place that is for our message of learning the gospel. It was in that hall that Paul taught the gospel, people learned the message, and many experienced the greatest change in their life that comes from salvation. Those saved by grace then gained more clarity about how the gospel affects all of life and more confidence in the gospel as they shared this message with others. We see some of the results of their witnessing in verse 10 where it says, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Conversely, there were also other people in that hall who learned the gospel but rejected its message. And as a result, they were not saved, which means they did not believe in the clarity the gospel can provide for all of life, nor did they find their confidence in the word or spirit of Jesus. If you do not want to be changed by the gospel, and if you have not been saved, then you continue to search for clarity in all the wrong places of life. Your life feels as confused as the confusing days we live in, and you turn to good things like healthy living or a successful career to make, uh, these are good things, but you make them ultimate things to make sense of your reality. 
And if you have not given your allegiance to King Jesus, you want the kingdom without the king. You may be spiritual or seeking, but your confidence slips from believing one thing to the next. Doubtful of any authority in your life, especially when those authorities fail you. You will end up with no one to turn to for help. But if you have learned the gospel and trusted in Jesus, then you believe the gospel gives you the confidence to stay true to what you believe. This could be during your philosophy class over at the U, or the gospel gives you the confidence to face trials, like enduring an unprecedented wildfire that burns your home and the community around you. And if you've been changed by the saving power of Jesus, then you not only have clarity about this gospel message, but you have clarity for how the gospel affects all of life your life's purpose becomes clear. It doesn't mean you know all the answers to things, but you pray to God to seek clarity about a recent job offer, your, or you message your mentor to seek counsel on navigating a family crisis, and you ask your community group what action step to take after studying a passage of Scripture. You've accepted the invitation to learn about Jesus from the Word of Jesus, doing so with the Spirit of Jesus in you and the people of Jesus around you. And one place we get to respond to what we have learned is at the communion table. It is at the table where we see the special and tangible expressing of the gospel, the good news of the sacrificial life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. It is here in communion where we as believers get to celebrate and remember the good news of the gospel in a special way. Now, practically speaking, if you did not get the elements on the way in, please raise your hand. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.